You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Sometimes he dreams he is there, in the heat of the crusher room mid-afternoon when the shift was new. On a swing shift afternoon in the uranium mill, Sunlight bore hard through the smeared windows in the room where the crushers split yellow ore for the yellow cake they made. At a certain angle in the heat of the day, golden dust filled the air above the conveyor belts, and entering the room was like entering an oven. You didn't want to go in. You didn't want to begin. Once there, though, the heat took you. You got the rhythm of the place. The clickety-click of the bearings in the conveyor belts the steady pounding of the crushers grinding rock to bits, dust the texture of chalk, mouth and nose coated. Entering the mill when the heat-sneered walls and ceiling began to sweat was exhilarating, like moving hard into a hot, fast wind. Bay Area author Anne Cummins' second book and first novel is called Yellow Cake, named for the ore dust that settled everywhere during the heavy years of uranium production. Particularly, it settled in the lives of two mining families. Even three decades down the road, long after the mines have closed, leaving a pair of fathers gravely ill, and these divergent clans interconnected. This character-driven novel touches on the legal battles, but focuses on the people. Their loves, new and old, their pain, their habits, and their traditions. Ann Cummins' short story collection, Red Ant House, was an undisputed success as a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller and book of the year. Now in Yellow Cake, she is back with more poignant humor and honest tellings of how people live their lives. Cummins divides her time between Oakland, California and Flagstaff, New Mexico, where she teaches creative writing at Northern Arizona University. Ann Cummins, welcome. Thank you. I should say welcome back. Thank you. I had you. the pleasure of interviewing you. Uh, couple years back for Red Ant House. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, wow. So we get in Yellow Cake so many things so fast. We, we get it all set up for us. We've got a white family. We've got a Navajo family. We've got language conflicts, as in the Navajos that speak Navajo and the Navajos who do not. The whites who speak, who don't, who do not. That's right. Yes. Um, Oh, and or the, the Navajo. Navajos yeah, you're right. Yeah, yes, yeah. the Navajos who do not. Even right. Within um, new loves, we've got legal issues. We've got illness. Yes. Um, a lot of research for the book, or were these things you were familiar with? Um, a lot of research for the book, but um, these are things that um, I basically grew up with. I really drew on um, my uh, home territory for the material in this novel. I was. Uh, born in Durango, Colorado, and grew up in uh, northern New Mexico, um, actually on the Navajo Indian Reservation there. Um, and my father was uh, in uranium, in the uranium business. So I had um, that in my background. Let's just go through some of, some of who, who is in the book. Um, we start out, um, we meet Ryland. Yes. Um, who managed a plant. Right. Correct. He was he was the foreman. The foreman. He was the on-site okay. foreman, yes. And um and then tied into his family we have the Navajo family, Woody, his daughter Becky, 
who Ryland can remember being born. Right, um, right. And that clan. Yes. Um, interesting characters. Ryland, very interesting, very ill as yes. the book starts out. And I think you do such an interesting job of showing us that illness from within. I, I was trying to think of other examples in literature in which we really see the the sick individual from the sick individual's perspective. And I don't think there are many. We often see the caregiver in that relationship, but we're really inside with, with mm-hmm. Ryland. Yes, yes, yes. The, the book kicks in when um, he has had a um, debilitating lung disease for a few years and sort of has been living with something that would seem like emphysema. And he knows the symptoms very well. So yes, he's he's constantly conscious of his body. And uh, but I, Ryland is is very um, split because he uh, what's going on with his body is in conflict with what's going on with his mind and his whole feeling of his life and the integrity of of choices that he made mm. um, in his professional life. Mm. Well, I know as foreman, um, he is the target of some blame from other characters in the book, and he questions, certainly struggles in, within himself as to what kind of responsibility he should carry for um, workers who've gotten ill, such as Woody. Right. Um, is, are, are, is this book interested in who's to blame? This book is interested in the um, in in people who have in moral people who have developed their own particular um, sense of what's right, and um, and they do question themselves. Ryland questions himself. Woody questions himself as well. Ryland and Woody are somewhat similar. They both are start out uh, with working class uh, perspectives. And they kind of come from a right-to-work kind of background. Both of them do. That's where they started. Um, but, of course, um, Ryland worked his way up in the company and ended up in a decision-making position. And he worked his way up in a company in an industry that turned out to have lots and lots of problems and whose workers suffered health problems afterward, after um um, years and years um, at the mill. Um, so Ryland, I don't, I don't see Ryland as someone who began his life knowing the consequences of his actions. He discovered as he lived it out, basically, how complex this situation was. Mm. And Woody um, also, he was, um, he was, the, the novel, the uh, timeline for the novel the present action takes place in 1991, after most of the business had already uh, shut down in this area. But the past um, occurred in the 60s and 70s, when um, these people were living, living it out and, and not understanding you know, what the repercussions would be for them years later. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in talking about sort of blame or judgment, I, I think one of the real strengths of your writing and, and this book is just how generous uh, you are in portraying the people in the book and how non-judgmental the narrator is. 
in the book. And um, we can maybe mm-hmm. jump uh, a ways away from Ryland and talk about Delmar mm-hmm. um, in that sense, who, when we first meet him, um, you know, he is, in some senses, the literal connection between the white world and the Navajo world. He is half Navajo and half white. Um, illegitimate son, shall we say, yes. of um, Sam, bosom buddy to Ryland and co-worker, right. um, and Alice, um, Navajo woman. And, uh, you know, we, we first meet him, he's, he's kind of a punk. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, as the, as the novel progresses, we get to see um, kind of how some of that came about. And maybe some of his sincerity in um, his next road, uh, we really get inside. Um, is that is there effort there not not to not to judge, or is that sort of what you bring as the author? You just bring all of the characters to the table, and they and they talk. Well, I just love working with character-based fiction because it does liberate me from uh, being judge, you know. I, and yes, basically, that is what happens. I, um, for this novel, I really auditioned many characters, and only five made the cut in the, in the, um, in the end. So the novel's told from five different points of view. Um, and the ones who made the cut were the ones who most engaged my imagination and uh, whose lives I, I felt that I could uh, get out of the way mm. personally mm. Uh, for them. Yes. Well, it, it's definitely written in cliffhanger style. I mean, it's oh, wonderful, um, you know, the way that it ends. I mean, <clears throat> we've had examples, certainly, of, of sort of different scenes from different perspectives and a variety of literature. But I think in the way that you present it here um, with so many voices, um, trading, that, those five voices, like you say, trading, and, and just, you know, it's, it's a cliffhanger is the only thing that occurs to me. It's oh, great. very I, compelling. I'm very glad that you that you felt that because um, I um, um, the most difficult thing for me as a writer was to learn how to write plots. You know, I've uh, I always kicked in with characters. My short stories character based, and I, I really feel like I can get under the skin of characters. But to actually make something happen and to figure it out in a book length, and uh, where all of the plots converge and the characters are all interrelated. Um, was a, a huge challenge for me. And also it was uh, possibly the most rewarding part of writing the book. I just had a great time um, leading up to cliffhangers and then seeing what would happen happen next. And you often d- didn't know yourself as, it, as, it, as you're writing? I, Absolutely. I, I never knew myself. And, and that's, my, um, that's a liability in, in my process. I can't figure it out in advance. I really... Um, come at um, these worlds from the inside. So, you know, I'm bungling along with the characters pretty much, trying to figure out how this fits into the whole story, you know, and and write draft after draft after draft, you know, sort of trying to figure it out. Oh, some wouldn't call that a liability, though. Just that, you know, that's why your readers can be surprised, you know, because because you were. Um, Let's introduce Becky a little bit more. and she is rather uh, quiet in her rage, mm-hmm. I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and and that, that description came to me only after I finished the book, I think. 
you know, where I could really see her, step back further and see her. But there's some stuff going on for her. Yes. Um, I, I love, in one more hu- more kind of humorous moment, um, she, she meets up with her Aunt Alice, um, mother to Delmar that we were just speaking of, who herself is kind of a renegade. Yes. And Becky is rather straight-laced, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and sh- Becky's trying to place the look on her aunt's face and decides that it has come from a night of good sex. Yes. And Becky's quote is irritating. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about her? Well, Becky is um, a uh, 25-year-old woman. She's full-blood Navajo. And, uh, but she is someone who comes from an unusual background. She didn't grow up on the reservation. She grew up 20 miles off the reservation. And she grew up in an English-speaking family, uh, both parents in Navajo. Uh, Becky's mother um, was, um, and, uh, was adopted, and she didn't know who her parents uh, were. And she was, is, is a um, staunch Christian. And Becky's father is a tradition follows the traditional Navajo religion. So Becky actually is a character that I am I am when I say I auditioned my characters, I really wanted to write from the Navajo uh, from the Navajo point of view, full blood Navajo point of view. But I really didn't feel that I could gain any authority in trying to write from the perspective of somebody who really grew up with traditional beliefs. And, and so Becky's background of being really um, two religions, she's as conflicted as, as Delmar is in her own way. But she really um, embodies what I observed when I lived on the reservation in, uh, uh, in younger generations who... who um, admired the older generation and listened to them and um, really wants to do right by herself and her family. And she wants to do right by her, her, her um, but she also is anglicized in that she wants to be a professional person. She wants to have money. She's got very Western tastes. So that, that's all, all of the different things that, that drive her. She, unlike Delmar, Delmar just sort of is on the edge of things, and he can, um, he's free to choose between being a bad boy and, and a good boy. Um, that's, he was raised that way. His mother, his mother, as you say, was, was sort of a, a wild card. Becky, the, Becky's choices are a little, not, um, not as dynamic as Delmar's. And yes, she is angry. Her, her father, she loves her father. Becky's a, a long-distance runner. And she learned um, how to run from her father, who was also a long-distance runner. And what she sees is this, um, this very healthy, strong man who gets sick and, and quickly, quickly declines. And, you know, so it's a smoldering rage that Becky mm. develops. Mm, mm. Well, yeah, I, I, and after her father is gone, after Woody is gone, um, she wonders uh, toward the, in the thinking thinking in terms again of Ryland uh, wonders to herself what the Navajo word is for murderer. Right. That was a poignant moment. There's a wedding going on. Yes. Um, <laughs> lest you think it's um, legal battles and and um, and uh, um, other 
bedside scenes, uh, which is a wonderful um, and deep subplot. Uh, Ryland's daughter, Maggie, is, is getting married. Um, and it's, it's also a wonderful um, setting to really see every, who everyone is. I mean, what, what other kind of contentious, stressful <laughs> event mm. could we conjure but the wedding? Yes. Um, so that, you know, the stakes are up there. Um, and we really get to see see people in high relief. Um, Sam, uh, I see as a really interesting link um, um, among the characters. Um, tell us about Sam. Well, Sam and uh, Ryland were best friends, and they met um, as boys. They actually met in a mining camp up in Colorado where um, in the the 30s, where their fathers were both um, mining silver. Um, but Sam's father died uh, when he was just a boy uh, in a mining accident. And um, Sam has grown up as a pretty self-directed man. He's also a, just a bad alcoholic. But he's very, very, I, uh, he's one of my favorite characters. He's very um, much a, a, he's a, he's a, also a bad boy, but a very dynamic he he's somebody to to me he embodies the um um american ideal of self-direction and individuality and it's no surprise that delmar is his son because you know delmar also in his own way embodies that delmar or sam and alice produced a a child that uh, has his eyes open and um and basically feels he doesn't have anybody to fall back on. Delmar is the kind of guy who thinks that family is, he loves his family, but he thinks he's got to make it on his own. And Sam does as well. Sam is the, he's the, just strikes me as the type of person, character slash person, um, whom you, you really want to dislike, but you can't. Oh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, he, There's so many reasons, if we made the list, yeah. not to like this man. And yet, he's very, very likable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because we, we think, and this, this is something I have to remind myself of, I think, um, as a reader um, of literature, that um, every time, maybe, every time I have to remind myself, that it's really about human interaction. Because I think we start out, we, I start out thinking, okay, it's going to be about the ugliness of the occupational and environmental ignorance and negligence going on here, but it's about the people. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't see it as um, a, um, I, I don't want it to be a, a polemic, I don't want to write a polemic novel. You know, I'm not um, interested in um, I, um, at, talking about the environment although really serious environmental concerns come into play in all of these people's lives. But um, I do think it's, it's very, very, it, it continues to be a conflict for lots of people, you know. Well, uh, with that, let's, let's read another passage from the book. Um, just we're going to read from the very beginning uh, that will set some of that up, um, some of the framework that uh, brings all these people together again for some of them. Um, Ann Cummins from Yellowcake. They come at 10 o'clock in the morning. Ryland's wife, Rosie, is at the fabric store with their daughter, Maggie, who's getting married next month. Ryland goes ahead and opens the door against his better judgment. 
He always opens the door when somebody rings, though he usually regrets it. He is not afraid of muggers. Muggers, he figures, will leave sooner rather than later. He's afraid of the neighbor lady, Mrs. Barone, who always leaves later, and the Mormon missionaries who like to fight with his wife. They always leave later. And pretty boy across the street, old Hal Rivers, who waters his lawn in bikini swim trunks, parades young girls in and out, day in, day out, ladies' man, though he has a gut and a little bald pape. Still the girls like him, which only goes to show that it's not the books but the pocketbook. Old Hal stopping by every now and again to chew the fat terrifies him, though Ryland makes sure the man never knows but that he's welcome. These people today, though, Ryland doesn't recognize. He lets them in because of the young Navajo woman with them, Becky Atsidi. She has to tell him who she is. You know my dad, she says. You're not Becky Atsidi. Yes, I am. He stands for a minute and admires the young woman little Becky Atsidi has become. He tells her that when he first met her, she wasn't any bigger than a thumbnail. Now they sit across from him, three of them on the couch, and Becky begins telling him how Woody is sick. Ryland shakes his head. He likes Woody. Your dad was a good worker. Every time somebody didn't show up for a shift at the mill, I'd call him and say, Woody, got a cup of joe with your name on it. And your dad would always say, okay then. Ryland looks over Becky's head out the front window to the ash tree in the yard. He has lung cancer, the woman says. Classy, dressed like a TV news anchor in one of those boxy suits. Hair any color but natural, one of those poofed up, clipped and curled deals that hugs her head. Your dad's a strong man, Ryland says to Becky. Don't you worry. Becky's sitting between the man and the woman. The man is looking all around, beaming at the pictures on the wall. He's got his hair pulled back in a little ponytail skinny guy in jeans. Becky says, they just think that maybe the mill workers should get some of the same benefits the miners got. We're just at the beginning of this process, Mr. Mahoney, the woman says. The mill workers like yourself and Mr. Atsidy are entitled. Tell him about the air ventilation in the mills, Bill. Bill's a public interest lawyer. I don't have cancer, Ryland says. The woman stops. She blinks at him. He watches her eyes slide to the portable oxygen tank at his feet. Of course not, she says. We were wondering if you kept medical histories on your workers and if by chance you still have. You people like something? I could put on some coffee. Rosie will be home any minute. She's going to be mad if she sees Becky Atsidy here and I didn't give her anything. Becky says, they think if you've got any records on Dad, it might give us a place to start. Mr. Mahoney, the woman says, as I'm sure you know, we made great strides when the Compensation Act passed, but it does us no good if there's no way for victims to collect. The mill workers like yourself and Mr. Atsidy are entitled. Bill, tell him about the... He doesn't have to tell me anything, Ryland says. The woman blinks again. She smiles. The lawyer gets up and walks over to the pictures on the wall. Is this your family, Mr. Mahoney? Handsome family. Ryland stares at the man staring at his family. The woman says, This is simply about workers who were continually exposed to toxic... Your daddy doesn't know you're here, does he? He peers at Becky, who leans back into the couch. 
They'd had a party when she was born. He brought cigars and cider to the mill. Sam Bahan, his own old chum, had teased him. During working hours, Rye? Sam had said, and Ryland said, who's the boss? They all raised a glass and toasted this girl's birth. Ryland leans forward. The girl stares at something over his shoulder. He can't read her. Navajos never could read them. But her dad, Woody's a good man, didn't truck unions. When they wanted to bring the union in, Woody said he had a family to support. This Ryland knows for a fact. Don't you worry about your dad, he says. He's a strong man. He looks at the news anchor lady. Her eyes are bright as a child's, and her grinning teeth are blue-white. Her hands laced in a fist on her lap are white, too, and the skin pulls so tightly it looks like her knuckles are about to bust through. One of the best men I know, Ryland says to her, Woodrow Atsidy, this girl's dad. Thank you. Yes. Um... You know, the, the Navajos are so tied to the land, of course, something that you might think would give a people a stability and, you know, a rootedness that was lasting, and yet it's, in fact, what makes them so vulnerable because of the land they were on. Yes. I, I wonder if you could speak to that from personal experience um, a little bit, from, from your childhood and what you knew and saw. Um. Do you mean um, on the reservation? You know, I think um, it's it's hard for me to s- to speak to that um, experience because what I um, I I have uh, come to understand so much of it in retrospect. Um, I do know that just the history of um, uranium mining on the reservation. You know, m- when the mines went in there. Most many of the Navajo miners didn't speak English, and there was no way to um, um, have a, a direct conversation about health problems. And I, you're 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 completely right. The uh, sense that nothing bad can come to the land, come from the land, is something that um, I think was just um, a given um, on the reservation. But I must say, it was also. It was it was a given among the white miners um, as well, even though you know the white miners from Colorado had they had the history of things like black lung and other health problems related to mining. But that was it was almost there's health problems yes, but as much a legacy and a lifestyle that um, that. I know my father and even my brother, one of my brothers, feels is a, is a lifestyle that um, um, in, generations have a right to, actually. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really, insi- that's an interesting insight. Um, well, I, you, we've left a character out, and so um, I, I want to I wanna, uh, invite Lily to the table <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if she'll come. Yes. Um, uh, Lily is Sam's wife, or ex-wife, um, and Rosie's sister, Rosie being Ryland's wife. So Ryland and Sam married sisters, yes. the sisters of Rosie and Lily. And Lily has her own voice in this novel. Um, she's one of those on the list of new loves, 
She has a new love in her life. Um, she also has a lot of things going on from the past. And that that really gets big, uh, I think, further in the novel. You realize just how much she's carrying. Um, but do you want to say anything in, in introduction uh, of Lily? Sure. Lily is, um, you know, she Lily really fell hard for Sam. And she, um, her... When when she found out that Sam was having a longtime affair with Alice, the um, Delmar's mother, and that um, he had a child by Alice, um, Lily was livid, but also grief stricken. And we see we meet her 17 years after that when she really has never gotten over being livid and grief stricken. You know, it's one of those really hard relationships that just sort of sucks you in the gut. And um, and she's still trying to catch her breath. And yet she's a survivor. I mean, Lily has learned how to make money and she's um, she's got a new guy in her life, as you say. And um, but but things get complicated for Lily because Sam shows up for Maggie's wedding and he comes back also uh, looking for Alice. And of course, when he shows up, the uh, all of the history and strangeness comes knocking at her door, basically. Yes. So do your characters ever continue talking to you after a book is finished? Are you in the grocery <laughs> store and Lily is commenting on the price of oranges? Or? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> you know, this, this novel was so much fun to write in the end. I mean, for the first couple of years, it was not fun. It was just a lot of chaos, and I didn't know where I was going. But in, they all got to be so real to me in the last year that I really hated to... Uh, see it end. And I really had that delicious feeling that I remember as a child. I, as a child, I had imaginary friends who really were more real to me than anybody around me. And, you know, you learn how to um, overcome that as an adult. But really, in the last six months of my of writing this novel, I felt that my imaginary friends were right there with <laughs> me as they were when I was, uh, you know, five years old. <laughs> mm. And uh, we we have to say goodbye, but um, tell me our second novels as scary as they seem. <laughs> is there is there going to be one? The the yeah, I find that I am um, really drawn to the long form now. I'm also drawn to. I got a, a nice um, grant from the Sloan Foundation and Magic Theater to turn Yellow Cake into a play. So I'm also drawn to the stage. So I'm hoping to try my hand at that. Oh, how exciting. Yes. Well, Anne Cummins, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Anne Cummins' book is called Yellow Cake. For KUSP, this is Catherine Petricelli. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.